0: the following podcast is sponsored by financial sense wealth management to learn more about our investment services go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939 u.s stocks rallied on friday after the december jobs report showed hiring rose more than expected but that wage growth slowed both allaying investors' fears of a recession and tamping down worries about future interest rate hikes. The Dow rose more than 2%, the S&P 500 gained more than 225 quarter, while the Nasdaq jumped more than 2.5%.
1: Twitter, Facebook owner Meta, now Amazon, the big tech job cuts continue. The e-commerce giant's confirmed it's axing 18,000 jobs this month.
2: During the pandemic, all the tech giants were clear winners. They went on a hiring spree, but they're now having to cut back.
1: 18,000 is by far the largest jobs to be axed and a lot more than what many had expected. It basically follows what the company calls overhiring during the pandemic when those tech companies were seeing a huge boost in demand. And if you remember, only 11 months ago, Amazon actually more than doubled its maximum base pay to attract tech talent because of increased competition. As you said, it is the latest big tech giant to announce major layoffs because consumers are now cutting back on spending because of inflation. So other than Twitter and Meta, uh, companies like Netflix, Lyft and Salesforce are also asking jobs.
0: New report this morning indicates that Dell is trying to phase out all the chips made in China by next year, joining names from Apple and Intel looking to diversify their supply chains.
3: Well, it's incredible that Dell is planning to do this within just one year, and that means completely stopping using China-made semiconductors. And it's not only just those that are made from Chinese firms, it's companies like foreign firms like TSMC or Intel that have production facilities in China. So that means that Dell can no longer or plans to no longer use these chips. The tension are growing. Dell's the first one. You have Apple as well and other companies, too, that are talking about diversifying their supply chain away from China.
0: This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense news team.
4: Well, we're off to a good start in the new year, with stocks rallying strongly on Friday after falling most of the week. A big drop in the ISM service report below 50, now in contractionary territory, helped spark a rally on Wall Street, sending the indexes into positive territory for the year. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplava, and a Happy New Year to all of you. Coming up on the program today, I'll be speaking with Ari Wald from Oppenheimer. Ari still feels the bear market has a way to go, but he's positive on the markets later this year. After Ari, Mark Chandler will join me as we discuss the prospects for the dollar, the markets, and commodities. And later on, we're going to have a special hour series as we look at forecast 2023. What the experts predict will happen to the markets, the economy, and interest rates this year. There's quite a dichotomy this year as we look at what the soothsayers are predicting for the year ahead. Before we do that, Let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. Goodbye
5: 2022 and hello 2023. The outlooks are in from every brokerage and analyst research house there is. And these outlook forecasts vary widely in their opinion from soft landing to hard landing on estimates for earnings and PE multiples and from what the rate the Fed may pause its restrictive policy. I'll leave that to Jim later in the show, but you can see how the tug of war on these separate issues played out throughout the first week of the year concerns shifted each day regarding the economic reports from good is bad to bad is good as the federal reserve's estimates to raise interest rates remains the focal point for investors in market trading it was a short week due to the new year holiday observation on monday in the u.s tuesday the year kicked off with a negative read on the sub 50 manufacturing pmi readings for December out of Asia and Europe over the weekend. The S&P 500 finished down 0.4% that day despite advancers leading decliners as many large cap stocks were hit on weakening demand calls. Apple was reported as having told its suppliers to build fewer components this coming quarter. The following day Microsoft was downgraded to neutral by UBS on concerns over weaker growth for cloud computing and Office 365 businesses. Salesforce announced the elimination of 10% of its workforce with reductions in real estate and office space planned as well. And Amazon announced an 18,000 cut to positions as well this week. Another big name, Tesla, announced fewer December deliveries in China versus November. So not a great start for some of the most well-known household names that we know. On the economic front, I already mentioned the China and Europe PMIs. Here, manufacturing continued to contract in December with a reading of 48.4 and services contracted for the first time since May of 2020. Residential construction spending continues to contract each month, something that started in June of last year. The jobs data this week was mostly positive, which raised concerns the Fed would have to continue to raise rates to fight inflation. The JOLTS, ADP, and initial claims reports this week were strongly communicating that the Fed would have to stay the course. Job openings increased to $10.458 million in November. ADP private payrolls added 235,000 jobs in December versus 127,000 in November. Initial claims decreased by 19,000 to 204,000 for the week ending December 31st. By Thursday, the two-year Treasury yield had risen to 4.45%, while the 10-year had fallen to 3.72%. However, those trends reversed on friday with weaker-than-expected payroll data that has switched the consensus to the Fed may be able to pause sooner. Non-farm payrolls increased by 223,000 in December following a revised 256,000 in November, while the unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent. Wage inflation moderated to 4.6 percent year-over-year in December versus 4.8 in November, and the report was thought to be a good one, since it wasn't as strong as it could have been. The two-year treasury yield fell from 4.45% the previous day, down to 4.4% after the jobs report, but fell even more, down to four and almost a quarter after the ISM non-manufacturing data came out with its contraction reading. The 10-year settled from 3.72%, the previous day down to 3.56%, which also helped stocks. The economic reports this week were the main driver as good was bad, and bad became good for stocks on Friday with the weak ISM non manufacturing reading and the lower wage inflation. We did hear from Fed officials this week with the December minutes on Wednesday, coupled with some sound bites from others. The most important line focused on in the minutes this week was the phrase no participants. Anticipated that it would be appropriate to begin reducing the federal funds rate target in 2023. According to the CME FedWatch tool, the consensus is that the Fed won't be able to move past 5%. So that's what market participants are stating with their Fed futures contracts. Kansas City Fed President George, a non voter this year, said she sees rates reaching 5% and staying there well into 2024. Atlanta Fed President Bostic, a non-voter, said he sees five to five and a quarter percent and like George, holding there into 2024. St. Louis Fed President Bullard, a non-voter, said while the policy rate is not yet in a zone that may be considered sufficiently restrictive, it is getting close. Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari, a voter this year, said he sees the Fed pausing at 5.4 percent and the Fed pausing at 5.4% and cautioned that rates could head much higher if there is slow progress for inflation after said pause. All comments this week seem to affirm the minutes that nobody sees a plan to cut rates this year. The steep drop in the two-year Treasury note Friday was a signal from investors to the Fed that a contraction is here, especially when the non-manufacturing sector, the largest part of the economy, rolls over. I think the longer the Fed doesn't listen to this communication, the harder it will be to avoid a policy mistake by being too tough on inflation. That's it for this week's wrap-up. Up next, Ari Wald will talk some technical sense of the market's trading as our first guest technician of the year.
6: The U.S. Central Bank is looking at a CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, and they took the first step last August when the Fed announced an instant payment system called FedNow. It's going to be launched in May and June of this year. And basically, FedNow is pretty much identical to Brazil's PIX, P-I-X. And that was introduced by the Central Bank of Brazil two years ago, almost three years ago. It's supposed to be a safe, mobile-friendly, instant-pay system. It's got no user fees. So... The Fed has also recently launched a 12 week pilot program with a few commercial banks to uh, test the feasibility of CBDC in the US. And that program is going to use digital tokens to represent bank deposits. The Reserve Bank of India intends to pilot launch CBDC, or as they call it, the E rupee. In China, an estimated 140 million people. I've already begun using the new digital yawn. That's a $10 billion worth of transactions. So central banks in more than 80 countries have or are in the process of gearing their monetary systems toward digital currencies. And a digital currency is 100% programmable.
1: To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button.
0: If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances in a zero interest rate environment, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
4: Well, here we are the first week of the year. So far, we're continuing a cycle that ended last year with stocks on the downside. But where do we go for this year? There's multiple opinions. It'll be a continuation of a bear market. Others see the bear market coming to a close. Joining us on the program is Ari Wald from Oppenheimer. And Ari, let's begin with your forecast for the year. You're somewhat optimistic, so let's begin with that. That's
7: right. We we do think that the bear cycle is being exhausted, and we see upside in the S&P 500 to 4,400 by year-end 2023. The crux of our view is based on our estimation of the equity cycle's placement we see the cycle at a crossroad, which makes this year's outlook tricky. In terms of greater conviction, our analysis indicates that the bear market is coming to an end rather than just being in the middle innings. Uh, And for those reasons, based on typical performance coming out of a bear cycle, uh, we do see upside um, into that 4,400 level. The key concern for us is that price hasn't confirmed this view yet that the S&P's downtrend is still intact with resistance at the 4,000 level. As long as that's the case, our outlook's going to face the lingering risks that the bear market resumes. So this, at the least, dampens our near-term expectations against our view that opportunity has been presented for the long-term investor.
4: Now, Ari, what's your view on interest rates and where the Fed is going? I, you know, I've read just about everybody for what they think is going to happen this year, you've got almost a a dichotomy. Some people say we'll see a recession in the first half. Others say it'll be a recession in the second half. Others say bear market continues in the first half and we launch in the second half. Where do you guys come down on these opinions?
7: For starting with the Fed, we don't necessarily have expectations on future uh, Fed trajectory on as far as how their policy is going to look through the course of 2023, but we do have views on how equity markets typically behave during the policy that's currently in place. First off, as we think about the pressure the market been under, we continue to make the case and reiterate that it's been the Fed's commitment to fight inflation that has been pressuring markets more than the actual threat of inflation. We've had many market levels of inflation that have been ticking lower for through much of the back half of 2022. Even headline CPI has ticked lower for five straight months, breakeven inflation expectations at the lower end of their year long range. So this makes aggressive central bank tightening in 1978 to 1980 a closer analog to current conditions versus the extended down cycles in 1968 and 1973 when policy was arguably cut too quickly and we bring up 1979 and and the similarities to that period a lot this was coming out of another non-recessionary bear market between 1976 and and 1978 and the S&P was subsequently able to Grind higher against a rising federal funds rate and a slowing economy, based on a falling ISM PMI. A recession did ultimately occur in 1980, so this was a later cycle upturn in the equity market. Which, if we were to follow that roadmap, would suggest you know recession risk uh, could be pushed off uh, 12 plus months from where we currently stand.
4: So let's turn our attention next to the dollar. We hit a peak. Right around September, October last year, the dollar has dropped from right around 114. On the day you and I are speaking, it's around 104. You uh, think that there's going to be a tactical support level at 100. Let's talk about that and what its implications are for corporate earnings.
7: We are long-term bullish on the dollar. We think the dollar has now entered a consolidation phase following last year's breakout above multi-year resistance. Uh, The DXY index currently finding some near-term support at the 104 level. We're, on the day we speak, to him. we're seeing the dollar start to curl higher. It's putting pressure and turn on commodity prices. I think looking ahead, there could be some additional backing and filling in the dollar while it does carve out uh, a base over the coming months. I think the bigger level to watch is the 100 level on the DXY. That was marked prior peaks for a number of years, starting in 2015, 2018, uh, 2019. Very often prior resistance becomes support. That was the big breakout level uh, from April. Uh, and so generally speaking, we are bullish on the dollar. We recommend buying pullbacks. And uh, it's just in terms of intermediate to longer term support, I think the 100 level's a big support level.
4: All right, let's move on to something that's added to inflation. That's the price of oil. We saw oil peak right around 120. It's uh, been coming down since then. Where do you think oil plays out? Is it going to be range bound most of this year? Or do you expect by, you know, if we were to have this conversation next year, where do you think oil will be? We would side with
7: expected range-bound trading. In fact, if you were to look back at how oil has traded in recent years, it's been characterized by these very wide swings in trading. And we do expect this to continue in 2023. We see long-term support for West Texas intermediate crude at $67. That marks the 2021 breakout above the 2019 peaks. And on the upside, the more recent August breakdown, Converges with the October highs and the 200 day average at $93, which we see as
4: resistance. And so let's move to other commodities. I want to talk about gold. I would have thought it would have been much higher last year given the inflation numbers, but uh, you see gold getting its old high?
7: We do. In terms of the, uh, of the commodities, we're starting to see relative strength in the precious metals. Gold, most notably, we think it has a stronger trend than that of the price of oil. So starting the year, it's the, the the yellow metals been able to work above its 200-day average. Again, I think it's more of a near-term trade. I, as we think about the big run-up in gold from the year 2000 uh, over the subsequent decade into 2010, that coincided with a 50% haircut in the US dollar. We're not expecting that type of dollar weakness. In fact, we're favor more of a stronger dollar over the long term. So for that reason, I, I think we see gold as more of a, a trade. It's a trade that looks like it hasn't fully played out. And We do see a move back to the prior highs uh, at around the $2,000 level for the spot price marking both its 2020 and, and 2022 peaks. I think that trade is intact as long as 1750 support is upheld. Uh, That's gold's 50-day average.
4: What about silver, which has been showing some unusual strength lately?
7: Yeah, that relative strength is we're seeing it in precious metals broadly, Uh, and the spot price of silver has also, like gold, moved above its 200-day average. We're seeing a lot of the mining stocks; it's it's uh, also start to show relative strength. Uh, Again, silver still a lot of formidable resistance overhead. Don't think this is a a longer-term trend that has developed, but uh, I think through the course of 2023, uh, both precious metals can continue to work their way higher. For this uh, price of spot silver, uh, we see resistance starting at around $26. That becomes more formidable at $28.
4: I want to talk about last year was one of those years where the 60-40 portfolio didn't work. I mean, bonds got hit, stocks got hit. I see that you guys think that the 10-year treasury yield will get down to about three and a quarter. So is this a year where investors can make money in bonds?
7: I think they'll do better in equity prices. You know, first speaking in terms of on the bond side, outside of equity land, you know, our analysis does support the idea that 10-year treasury yield reversed its 40-year structural decline in 2022, Uh, we do expect the coming quarters to be characterized by a consolidation phase following last year's breakout. So our recommendation is to sell Treasury bond prices into 3.25% support, and we see long-term upside into 5.25% resistance, around 5% uh, for the 10-year Treasury yield. Uh, And as we think about the relative valuations between stocks and bonds and the increasing attractiveness of of treasury bonds. Uh, If we were to assume that 2022 marked the end of zero interest rate policy, looking at the valuation spread between stocks and bonds, we'd expect stocks to become more expensive versus treasuries going forward, because that spread is just getting back into its pre-ZERP range. Uh, so, looking ahead, we think uh, stocks uh, are likely to provide better upside uh, over the coming years versus treasury bonds.
4: I want to talk about energy. And you say, uh, you know, it's been one of the top performers at 21, 22. And it's rare that a sector outperforms for three consecutive years outside healthcare, maybe from 89 to 91. Uh, But if you take a look at where oil went sort of the last part of the year when we had that correction in oil, the oil stocks have held up pretty well. What what do you think happens to the energy stocks? Because literally, you take a look at some of these companies are literally printing money. I think it's something like Exxon is announcing a $50 billion stock buyback. I mean, and given its employees 9% raises. So what do you see happening to the energy stocks here? Right. I think it's would be very
7: likely to see the run of outperformance begin to slow and moderate, not necessarily come to an end. It's still an established momentum area of the market that I think has good support underneath it. But I think not only should the pace of the rise subside, but I I don't think it's going to be as broad of a move to the upside as well. And I think now we're really going to see where the uh, structural changes are occurring within the sector. Uh, and in terms of, uh, there's particular stocks that we'd we be keying on, I think those that have been able to clear prior highs from 2018 and, in, and 2014 is where you are seeing the structural shift in the sector. That through some semblance of holding up better on the downside or acting stronger on the upside, uh, selectively some of the EMP names in particular uh, are showing some real considerable and meaningful and significant multi you know decade-long breakouts and trend conversely some of the service names still face formidable resistance overhead i think they're going to be treated more as a beta trade and you are starting to see selectively some of these stocks roll over uh following very strong returns so i think even in that group and what was very one-sided outperformance on the upside you're going to start to see more bifurcated returns going forward, and the key is going to be on stock selection.
4: I want to move on to what we call the Fang stocks. I mean, you've seen Amazon lose about 55% of its value. You've seen Facebook come down, Microsoft's coming down, and even Apple. What's your take on the Fang stocks here, which were the stiller performers leading into, uh, let's say, 2022?
7: Yeah, these have been key parts of the 2022 bear market. Growth broadly speaking and even if as we think about the Q3 slide in the market, it was very concentrated in these select few mega cap growth stocks while we were actually seeing some improvement in the breadth of the market and instead the market a lot of investors were using these mega cap stocks as a source of funds and that has continued whereas we've seen some continued sell off sell offs in these high profile names uh, I think looking ahead here too, it's not going to be the one-sided show that it was. I think looking at these names selectively, some are better positioned than others. While they're all under pressure over the near term, I'm keen on the names within that subset that have are still intact on a secular basis. And by that, I mean that their declines have retraced only a fraction of their prior bull market names that have been able to hold the big breakouts from the fourth quarter of 2020. A lot of the tech names in particular have been able to do that. If we're talking about growth stocks or even the Fang names that are back down to levels from their 2020 lows, those are the ones that have suffered a much bigger damage to their secular trend. And I think those are the ones that are going to require quarters, if not years of repair. They can be a beta trade. They can work uh, for very short periods of, a, a, at a time when market conditions are strong. I think, unfortunately, you got to buy them right. You got to use a tight stop and you got to sell them right instead. Uh, so in summary, I think there too, while under pressure over the near term, I, I think uh, there's, you're going to see more bifurcation in that group going forward. When we do get a, a market turn, and the bull market resumes as we ex- expect. It's very common to see a rotation into the prior bear market's biggest laggards. Uh, so when we are at that point, I do wanna be open to there There could be a very big performance chase uh, into, uh, into some of those names.
4: Yeah, I wanna go on because usually when you have a bear market as we're in right now, when you come out of the bear market, you usually see a change in leadership. Do you see that happening? And if so, What sectors would you expect to lead?
7: One hallmark of a new bull market is a rotation into the prior bear cycle laggards. And the prior laggards have been growth. I think you want to treat that very selectively because I think only some of those names are really going to be able to maintain that performance over a longer period of time. What we found is that when the yield curve is inverted, as it currently is that while that does typically have a put longer term pressure on the market as you face that looming recession in the horizon? One way to balance that is by increasing exposure to the momentum factor uh, because we have found that high momentum has outpaced low momentum by its widest margin when the yield curve has been inverted. And so we put together a screen. We want, we attempted to identify stocks that were the biggest laggards into the summertime low and have since started to re take on a leadership role since the summer that have been part of this better internal breadth in the market over the last six months. And one area that stands out from that screen that we produce is the industrial sector. Uh, And that is really where we're starting to see new leadership emerge. Uh, and that is taking over the momentum factor, and would be the sector standout as we think about you know better performance in the market in 2023.
4: So, as an investor right now, as we close here, what would you be doing? Would you be maybe nibbling, or would you still say sit on the sidelines and wait for confirmation? What would you uh, recommend investors do at this point?
7: We recommend investors know their time horizon. And at the same time, appreciate that the trend is still lower here and we're not out of the woods just yet. For those that have a much shorter time horizon, I, I think it's important to keep expectations balanced and reasonable. That it's tough to know in, um, ahead of the fact what is going to be the catalyst and how far away are we to that final breakaway in the market. We're not there yet. But I think for the long term investor, again, we side with the idea that market conditions appear to be basing, and if you have a 12-month time horizon, we should be seeing better market returns than what we've seen in the prior 12-month period. So I I think uh, now is the time to start allocating back to equities, keen on the areas that are showing relative strength, like the industrial sector. in terms of trying to put together uh, you know, a longer-term wealth profile that's, that's going to work for the long-term investor.
4: Well, I tell you, that was a great report. And uh, if, our, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you guys do at Oppenheimer, and especially yourself, how can they do so?
7: Well, they can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Ari Wald.
4: All right. well, Ari, the best of a new year to you, and hope to talk to you again in the future. Thanks so much for coming on the program, and all the best. Look forward to it, Jim.
7: Thanks as always. Happy New Year, take care. Generally
3: between 60 and 80 percent of the price action is driven by the business cycle. So what is the business cycle? We talk about the business cycle as being a combination between the real growth cycle, the inflation cycle and the policy cycle. So if you understand those three subcycles, you'll understand the business cycle. And you understand the majority of what drives the price action, not just for sectors, but for individual stocks as well. And if you choose to ignore the business cycle, you'll find yourself frequently being confused by the price action uh, when you look at the market. And that's just not a pleasant place to be. So we think 2023 will be characterized by deflation and what we mean by that slower real growth and slower inflation. In other words, we expect real growth to go pretty deeply negative and we expect inflation to fall precipitously. I'd say significantly slower than the rest of the street does. Why do we care about that? Well, that has significant implications for virtually every tradable asset, right? Stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, as well as the different market internals. So sector performance, relative performance, performance of different style factors. And the other reason that we care about deflation specifically is that it's the market regime uh, most characteristic of a recession. And ultimately, that's what we think is going to happen. To listen to this
1: full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button.
2: At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939. Or go to FinancialSense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
4: Well, here we are the first week of the year. Stocks are kind of wobbly as they were at the end of the year what will 2023 bring? Well, let's find out what's going on with the dollar. Joining us on the program is Mark Chandler. Mark, you wrote a piece recently called One's Own Worst Enemy. I wonder if we can
8: begin with that and the implications of what's going on. Sure. So the basic premise there is that it's so easy for us to attribute America's well-being to something outside the US. You know, during most of our lives, it was a Cold War with the Soviet Union. And more recently, of course, it's uh, been the rise of China. And I think that most of the problems that affect America are really homegrown. There are, you know, various things. I mean, you think about uh, in the U.S., the violent crime, the gun violence, the rate of suicide among young people. Even when it comes to inflation, you know, a year ago, people were trying to argue that Chinese producer prices was a good lead into U.S. consumer prices. But that's just silly. And we see it now in hindsight. It's even sillier, it seems. Federal Reserve Chair Powell talks about core service prices in the U.S. as being the sticky part of inflation right now. Core service prices. What are those? Rents, medical costs. Those things have nothing to do with what's going on in Beijing, Moscow, Kiev, or Ho Chi Minh City. These are domestic issues. And I think that by focusing on the foreign aspects, One, it makes the US look like a victim, which I don't think the US is. And secondly, I think it really helps us evade what is ultimately the social question in the US. How should we, a rich country, a strong country, how should we react, how should we act towards each other? And the disparity of wealth and income in the US, I'm afraid, weakens our democratic institutions.
4: And Mark, what about the issue, you know, The one mistake the Fed did is they left interest rates too low, stimulating the economy. And of course, Congress with fiscal policy. So the Fed goes from transitory to, oh, this is serious. So probably one of the fastest rate hikes I've seen in my lifetime. But then on top of that, we just passed another 1.7 trillion of new spending. So it seems like physical policy is working against monetary policy. The Fed's trying to slow down the rate of inflation, bring it down, and yet Congress keeps spending more money. So, how's this going to end up, in your opinion?
8: Yes, yeah, I think you had an important point. I think, and that is, and I guess it's thinking again about what's happening here domestically. I think what you say is true. I think that you know we were hit with a pandemic and a shutdown of the economy, and so how should policymakers respond? Of course, I don't think that anybody can get it right. And so they chose to make it. I think, in some ways, if we admit that we can't get it right, we can choose which way we want to be wrong. And I think the Federal Reserve chose and would choose again to overdo it rather than underdo it as far as monetary stimulus. I think that's just uh, part of the sort of policy choices. On the other side, fiscal policy. I think even now, I don't think people fully appreciate how tight fiscal policy was in the U.S. in 2022. I'll give you an example: the way to That economists might want to measure this is the budget deficit as a percentage of GDP. Because of that fiscal spending related to COVID and whatnot, the deficit blew up to 15.6% of GDP in 2020, 15.6%. In 2021, it was 10.8%, 10.8% 2021. Last year, it fell to 4.4%. So while the Federal Reserve was tightening monetary policy their first move was in March, but they began signaling it the market in September. And between September 2021 and March 2022, the U.S. two-year yield jumped almost 100 basis points. So Fed tightening, but fiscally, we were also tightening aggressively. That 600 basis points reduction, it took us several years after the great financial crisis to achieve that. And you're right, the Congress has passed another spending bill, but it looks like the deficit, making some modest assumptions about growth this year, the deficit probably is not going to change very much from that 4.4% we saw last year. And so I think that the challenge then is, is going to be more on monetary policy. And my own sense right now is that the market is underappreciating the chances of a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting, which concludes on February 1st. Of course, before we get there, we got to get the jobs data this Friday. And then on January 12th, the CPI number. I expect the jobs number to continue this relatively uh, gradual slowing. But still, you think about that, what 200,000 jobs would mean in December. It'd be the slowest for about two years. But think about where we were in 2020, 2019, and 2018. The average for both years was well below 200,000. So I think the jobs market will be still seen by the Fed as robust. And you know the economy, looking at the Atlanta Fed, the GDP now tracker, it looks like the US economy expanded by more than 3% for the second consecutive quarter. And that is, I think about it, in terms of where the Fed says trend growth is that non-inflationary rate, they have it about 1.8%. So bottom line here, I think that the upcoming data is going to show the economy is still too hot for the Federal Reserve. And that's going to lead them, I think, to a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting. And the market says there's only about a one in three chance of 50 basis points. I would expect the next two weeks, those odds are going to more than double. And so because I was
4: reading all kinds of analysis for 2023 by the financial industry, and the consensus seems to be they'll maybe go a quarter point in February, and then what, March or April, they'll go another quarter point, and they get up to five, and that's it. But I don't know. I mean, the Wall Street Journal just did an article, employers are having to pay higher wages to keep employees my own state of California, is putting into place a $22 minimum wage for fast food workers. I mean, right now, the minimum wage is, what, close to 15. So I can't help but see that being inflationary on the wage front, which is not good news for the Fed.
8: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports the jobs data, they report average hourly earnings. And they look to be rising at around 5%. Is not probably the Fed's preferred measure. But Again, when we go back to Powell's idea that stickiness of core service inflation, I think you're right, are a key part of that core service uh, price pressures. i tell you what I think is going to happen, though, is, and I try to write this up in some of my commentary, I think that what you're experiencing in California, and what we're experiencing in other parts of the country, this shortage of labor, I think it's a transitory phenomenon. I think that the real issue is going to be that the economy doesn't create enough jobs for the people who want them. And I say that because I'll give you an example. What is it? A, a course service that most of us use almost every day getting a cup of coffee. And, and outside San Francisco, there is a robotic barista. I'll give you another example. It takes about 12 to 18 people to make a t shirt. These are like, this is just sewing primarily, putting pieces together and sewing passing it back and forth. And there's a robot now that can do it. I you think about this progress we're making in driverless vehicles, I'm not talking necessarily about cars, forklifts, trains. There's all kinds of ways in which technology, I think, is going to be squeezing out more and more jobs. And I think that the higher wage costs that you're seeing say, in, say, fast food is going to do the same thing. There was a personless drive-up window for delivery. You know, I just think that this technology is what's going to happen. We're talking about reshoring jobs that were lost to China or other countries coming back to the US. And I think that the difference is that the activities might come back to the US, auto production, but it's going to take place with fewer and fewer people. And so I think that the part of the problem is, again, this goes back to I think a purely domestic issue in the US, and that is the disparity of wealth and income. And I think that part of the jump that you're seeing, you know, what I like about foreign exchange and the capital markets is this small incremental price increases taking place constantly, or changes taking place constantly. But when it comes to wages, for the that we buy in a grocery store, it's more of a step function. The price of wages stay the same for many years, and then they jump up. And we want to count that year that it jumps up as inflationary, as opposed to advertising it over the longer
4: period. So I want to change gears and come back to the dollar again, and something that we're starting to see in the international area, and that's moving out of the petrodollar. You're seeing China, Russia, members of OPEC coming together and pricing oil and either other currencies, and Russia's talking about gold. What impact do you think that's going to have on the dollar? Because as we look right now, the dollar has been in decline. You see it going further. And what impact will this move away from the petrol dollar have on the US dollar?
8: Yeah, Jim, I think this is really the key question that many people are asking. If we've used Various sanctions to try to isolate Russia. We've encouraged even by example of using the sanction regime it makes sense that China wants to do more of its own trade in RMB. And the U.S. is a huge. I think we're the world's largest producer of carbon to energy. I think we're one of the largest exporters of natural gas and oil. Probably not oil. I'm sorry, but probably the largest producer, but not uh, exporting of natural gas. And they'll say, "Look, well, what's going to happen?" as the Saudis begin possibly pricing oil in terms of their largest customer, China. Well, in my work with foreign exchange, I tend not to emphasize trade so much, because to me, the key development of our generation has really been this explosion of capital markets. Give you an example, the Bank for National Settlements, which, you know, was set up to collect war reparations from Germany after World War I they are now considered a central banker's central bank. And they produce a survey every three years about the volume of the foreign exchange market. It's incredible, over the past three years, it's still growing at about a 14% pace over the three years, faster than most businesses, faster than most of the economy. And what this means is that the foreign exchange market turnover is just huge, over $6.5 trillion a day, the market for capital outstrips the market for goods. That's oil, gold, trade of merchandise, trade and services. So I think that the dollar's role in the world economy is secured by the treasury market, the depth and breadth of our capital markets in the US. And sure, you know uh, there could be some defections. The Saudis might take RMB from China. It doesn't look like they have yet. But think about what Saudi Arabia is going to do. Their currency is pegged to the dollar. When the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates at that, when the meeting concludes on February 1st, you know Saudis are going to have to hike interest rates too. So what is Saudi Arabia going to do with the RMB that they acquire if they were to sell the oil to China for RMB? Well, they could buy Chinese assets, but those Chinese assets, for example, the bonds yield well below US treasury yields. You have much less transparency and less liquidity. To what aim, to what goal would that do for Saudis? It's not so clear what their advantage is. And of course, they do buy goods from China, but their oil surplus is bigger than their trade, their goods deficit with China. So in a nutshell, you might say that out of all the things we need to worry about in the US, I don't think that the idea that Russia or China or a couple of Middle East countries, including perhaps Saudi Arabia, will begin trading more in their local currency. I think that the rule of the dollar as a reserve currency, as an invoicing currency, so when Australia sells China iron ore, dollars, most of Chinese trade is already is still being conducted in dollars. An estimate of a third of European trade is still conducted in US dollars. Think about all those commodities where the dollar is still traded in US dollars, or invoiced in US dollars. So I think that the dollar's rule, I think, is safe. But to me, you raise an important point as well, and that is how will the dollar's rule end? Will it end because somebody encroaches like the R and or the Indian rupee? Or will it be because the US abdicates, gives up its role as a global leader? And that's really my concern, the abdication. You know, one of the successes, one of the keynote successes of Treasury Secretary Yellen has been the negotiation of global corporate tax reform. It is hoped that the countries over 150 countries would approve of it by the middle of this year, 2023. My guess is the U.S. will not. That like the law of the seas or the treaty that set up the Court of Justice, the International Court of Justice, or the landmine treaty, I think the U.S. helps negotiate these, but doesn't join. And this would be another example in my mind of corporate tax reform with abdication where the U.S. is giving up as global leader rather than somebody taking it from us.
4: And finally. I'd like to switch gears a bit. If you take a look at what the consensus is on Wall Street, primarily, most people see a recession. Some people say it'll come in the first half. There's another contingent that says it'll come in the second half. And likewise with the market, the first part of the year will be rough because the Fed will be raising interest rates, but then they either go on pause or pivot, and things look rosy for
8: the second half of the year. What's your view? Yeah, it's a tough one, huh? Because a lot of people, I think, were Think about what happened last year. We had a weak economy contracting GDP in the first two quarters, growing the second two quarters. My best guess is that the economy does look like it's got momentum, and that could carry us well into 2023. But I'm concerned, like others, that the consumer is being tapped out, the US consumer driven by the wealth effect. And the wealth effect comes from a few different sources. One of them that still seems fairly strong is income from jobs. That is, more people are working and, again, paid a bit more for that work. Uh, The problem, though, is that the pay, at least that hourly wages that we're seeing, is not keeping pace with inflation. And so what did consumers do? They did a couple of things that I think are of a fixed duration. One is they're drawing down their savings. Secondly, when they were able to refinance homes, they took equity out given a backing up of interest rates, that game, that cash register is over. And the third thing they've done is they've rung up a lot of credit card debt. So I'm concerned that in a rising interest rate environment and perhaps a slowing growth environment, remember that the last two, Q4 and Q3, look to be in the US growing more than 3%. So I'm concerned of an economic slowdown still ahead of us. And all those yield curve measures are also seem to be consistent with a slowdown in the US economy. I think the question is, if the US economy doesn't really contract, but slows to say less than 1%, it'll feel like a recession for many, and I think many will act like it is. You know, there's no real agreed-upon definition of recession. And it's kind of interesting that the whole concept of recession comes about as a way to differentiate the end of a business cycle with the Great Depression of the 1920s and 1930s. So I do think that the business cycle is longer and flatter but that it, that the problems with the US consumer are, to me, the key headwind they will be facing probably later this year, maybe it's towards the middle of the year.
4: And let's not forget what happens if, let's say, China's economy opens up and they start uh, economic growth increases, the demand for oil, you know, everybody's thinking, you know, oil has come down from 120, it's down closer in the 80 range, what happens if it goes back up again? Well, listen, Mark, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow your work, tell them how they can easily do so. Thanks, Jim.
8: I have a blog that I work at a bank, First Financial. I work at a division of that, Bannockburn Global Foreign Exchange. And they let me post my stuff on a blog, which I call Mark to Market. Mark with a C, Mark to Market. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Mark Making Sense. And that comes from my first book, called Making Sense of the Dollar. All right. Well, listen, Mark, Happy New Year to you and
1: hope to talk to you once again. Happy New Year, Jim. Good luck to everybody. All right. Take care. Hey, everybody. Be sure to check out a special edition of our Big Picture Show, which we are airing as a separate standalone podcast. It's an in-depth look at what the major investment banks and strategists are predicting for the markets this year, including some outrageous predictions and forecasts that could shake things up. As always, you can find that right on our Financial Sense website or right in your podcast feed. And also, I should point out that Financial Sense News Hour is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and across all major podcast providers. If you have any questions about what we discussed today or if you'd like to contact us about Financial Sense Hour or our investment services, feel free to go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us.